Tim Egan thought he'd try walking an old pilgrim route to Rome to see how it might shed a little light on what he believed. If there wasn't even a religious reason to go there, it's worth the walk because it's every place is a new adventure, every place is a drama. He tells us how encountering a medieval mindset in person can get you thinking about what we value today. Along the way, you'll probably see some religious relics on display. Peter Manso explains how they seem to take on a force of their own. Wherever they exist, they become the site of pilgrimages. People hmm. come to see them by the thousands. And hear how St. Catherine of Siena changed world history by writing a letter to Pope Gregory in Avignon. Dear Gregory, this is Catherine from Siena. You need to come back to Rome because I had a vision when I was six, so make it happen. The patron saints of Italy, the relics of their lives, and what hiking a pilgrim trail can do for you. Come along with us in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Tim Egan shares some surprises he encountered while hiking the medieval Via Francigena pilgrim route from Canterbury to Rome. Peter Manceau investigates the power of religious relics around the world, relics that have inspired travelers for centuries to find a way to see them in person. And Anna Peperato tells us about the Italian saint that inspired her to move from Massachusetts to Tuscany. It's all coming up on our Easter edition of Travel with Rick Steves, which coincidentally is also our 18th anniversary show. Let's start out the hour with Anna Piperato for a look at the importance of patron saints in Italy. Anna's here to tell us why she studied the life of 14th century St. Catherine and then moved to Tuscany to live in Catherine's hometown. Anna, buongiorno. Thank you, grazie. So you live in Siena. And there's saints all around, on the spires, on the squares, on the fountains, filling the churches. What's the role the saints play in the life of of one of your neighbors, for instance, in Siena? Well, today, perhaps the role is not as big as it would have been 500 or 700 years ago. But there is a certain pride knowing that certain saints walked these cobblestones. We are very proud of our saints, and Siena has a lot of homegrown saints, one of whom is incredibly important. Who's that? St. Catherine of Siena. And that's the saint that you were so enamored with that you got your Ph.D. on the subject. What is so special about St. Catherine? St. Catherine of Siena, I'll just, I won't bore you too much with dates, but she was born in 1347. She died in 1380 at the age of 33, just like Christ. And from a very young age, like all saints, she wanted to be Christ-like. At the age of six, she had her first vision of Christ in pontifical robes above San Domenico. This led her to believe that the papacy, which was at the time in France, needed to return to Rome. So this is confusing to a lot of us, but if I understand it correctly, for some reason, the Pope, which had traditionally been in Rome, as we know, went up to France in Avignon. Mm -hmm. And then St. Catherine came on board. What did she do? Yes, well, she had that vision when she was six years old, and then as she grew older, she became very involved in politics. And she wrote letters to noblemen and kings and queens and the Pope, who was at the time Gregory XI. And she said, Dear Gregory, this is Catherine from Siena. You need to come back to Rome because I had a vision when I was six. So make it happen. He invited her to go to Avignon. And you imagine a 14th century woman, let alone you or me today, being invited to the to Vatican see the to see and the make Pope. Her case. Exactly. She went, she made her case, and two years later, he was in Rome. Uh, sorry, one year later, he was in Rome. In 1376, he returned. In 1378, he died, and a new Pope was elected. But this new Pope was Roman and not French. The French cardinals were upset. They went back to Avignon and said, we're electing our own pope. The Romans are like, no, we're keeping our own pope. Two popes, great schism starts, 1378. Thanks, Catherine. Complicated things there, St. <laughs> Catherine. Okay, now yes. tell me just 
saints in general, what is the definition of a saint, and, and why are saints so integral to Catholicism? Well, a saint, of course, is not God. Uh, in Catholicism, it's very re- important to remember in Christianity that there is the Trinity, but one God, the Father, the Son, mm-hmm. the Holy Ghost. In Catholicism, the Virgin Mary also plays a very important role, but she's not God. She's not a saint. She's something in between. And then you have saints, and saints really act as They don't intercede on our behalf. They haven't got a direct line to God, but they can help us become closer to God. We can emulate their practice to become more Christ-like. Not to be Christ, not to be a saint ourselves, but to be good people. So to inspire us. To inspire us. To set a good example. Exactly. Many of the saints are Italian. Yes. Is that just because a lot of the popes are Italian until modern times? I think so. So it's not that Italians are more saintly than other people. They just hope that You've the met Italians, Rick. Advantage. We love them, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So now, from a Catholic point of view, you've got the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and you've also got the saints, yes. and you've got God. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the utility of a saint? Do you appeal to a saint to appeal to the Virgin Mary to appeal to God? or In some cases, yes. But in some cases, if you've got a problem that's relatively minor, you lose your keys, you pray to St. Anthony. He helps you out. You don't need to bother the Virgin. You don't need to bother God. He can help you out. So there's an appropriate saint for whatever your problem may be. There's a lot of saints. How many saints would you imagine there are? You know, it changes because sometimes they get de-sainted if people don't think they're holy enough or they're just not granting any more miracles, and they get their halo taken off. But there are hundreds and hundreds of saints. I understand there's a saint for each day. Yes. And you are Anna, and St. Anna would be your patron saint? Yes. And what is her day? Uh, The 26th of July is my onomastico, my name saint day. So if if you are uh, respecting the whole idea of saints, you kind of have two birthdays? Yes. In a way, yes. Everyone says, Buono nomastico. The first time, what? Huh? What? Nobody knows your birthday, but everyone knows your name. So they know your onomastico. So they'll know what your name exactly. is. Exactly. And are most Italians named after a saint? In general, yes. The traditional names, Anna, Sara, Old Testament names, New Testament names, so many Marias, Anna Maria. Anna, of course, is the mother of Mary. Anna Piperato is our guide to the saints of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Anna earned her Ph.D. studying the life of Catherine of Siena, which is where Anna now makes her home. Her website is SiennaItalyTours.com. Deborah from Paxton, Massachusetts, joins us on the line at 877-333-RICK. Hey, Deborah. Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for taking my call. It had occurred to me I had visited my cousin in Montanata, and we were out strolling the streets for Passeggiata, and he was very happy to point out to me the statue of Padre Pio and pointed out that as we traveled throughout Italy to look because we would notice that the villages all in southern Italy all had a similar homage to Padre Pio. And, of course, he was from the Gorgano Peninsula, not far from Montanata. And it's such a beautiful area there. And I think that many tourists, at least American tourists, really only come to that area if they are, in fact, doing a pilgrimage. Now, the Gorgano Peninsula is in uh, the south of Italy, is that right? Yes, yes, and it's quite, you know, kind of very rugged beauty and very untouched. The Italians, they, that's where they go for their August holiday, mm-hmm. and so it is very much geared for tourism, And but the American tourists still have not found it unless they, in fact, are there for a, a pilgrimage. So now, Padre and, Pio, um, you'll, you'll see his uh, uh, altars and, and uh, special corners dedicated to him in churches all over Italy, but especially in the South. I, I know in Naples a lot. This is a, a good example of a, of a saint from our own generation, basically. Yes. 
Well, as the caller said, it's a, where he's from is a beautiful area. Beaches are great for tourism, but saints are better. Saints have been bringing tourists from all over. So we called them pilgrims before. Pilgrims, yeah. So a lot of people will go to Padre Pio's They're uh, good for business, yeah. For that. Padre Pio, what was he known for? Well, he was, he, he was a quote-unquote humble man. I don't want to offend any listeners here, but I don't know much about him. But one of his famous traits is he received the stigmata, or he claims that he did. Uh-huh. And he would go around with his bandages on his hands. And the stigmata are proof that you are Christ-like. Okay. And St. Catherine had them. Is Padre Pio already a saint, or is he on the yes. road to saint? So he is a he saint. He has been made a saint. He's one of our newest saints. And this stigmata is very interesting. So this is a mark of uh, the intensity of your faith and your devotion, that you would yes. feel the suffering of Jesus on the cross to the degree that you would actually physically get the marks of the cross on your body. Yes. Or in Catherine's case, they were invisible, which was slightly problematic, but she felt the pain in her hands and her feet and her side, the wounds that Christ received on the cross— she received them as well. So St. Francis famously He was got the first stigmatic, the stigmata. yes. Stigmatic, that's yes. the word. And did Padre Pio actually have the stigmata? Was he a stigmatic? <laughs> well, let's this just is say a delicate he, issue. it's a very delicate issue. So I will leave it up to you to decide. And you can read about all the little ointments that he kept in his house that maybe provided some sort of <laughs> scar. Sort of helped it along. Exactly. Well, that's, <laughs> Deborah, any other thoughts on uh, Padre Pio and Gorgano? My question was, is I was surprised when we knew we were going to visit there because I had family there. My grandfather had been born there, so I was my own bit of a, of a pilgrimage. But I was surprised at how very little there was available about the Gargano Peninsula and was just wondering why is it it seems that that's been ignored, not basically. really uh, highlighted. Yeah, now this is the Gargano Peninsula, G-O-R-G-A-N-O. It's, it's in the south of Italy, and... I think it's ignored because it probably didn't have the the money and the importance in the old days, and there's nothing to look at that would compete with the culture you would find in Assisi or Siena or Rome or Florence. If yeah. I'm a tourist and you tell me to go to Gorgano, I'm going to be enjoying some pretty humble towns and some beautiful scenery, and uh, scenery's not unique to it's Gorgano. More of an Italian, yeah, a proper holiday destination right. for an Italian family who wants right. to relax and get away from it. When we that's come it. to Italy, we want to see things. Yeah, I think that's our take on it, Deborah. Hey, thanks for your call. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye now. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Piperato about saints and saints in Italy. Anna, there are countless saints. I mean, first of all, name a couple of uh, saints' days that would be celebrated in Italy with enthusiasm. Oh, gosh. Well, in Siena, my city, Sant'Ansano, St. Ansanas, he was the baptizer of the Sienese. He brought Christianity to the region. So every 1st of December, there is a huge procession in his honor that goes to the Duomo. There's a wonderful mass. And it's a really fun thing to participate in. And then uh, St. John the Baptist would be a big saint. Yes. And you know what? We love him in Siena, too, because he's the patron saint of Florence. But we have his arm. You have the arm of St. John we the Baptist? We do. And we, we, we put it on display and kind of laugh at the Florentines, so even that's to your this little day. dig at the Florentines yes. for centuries. And who's the patron saint of Siena? We have loads. We have Ansanos, Crescentius, Sabinus, and Victor, Catherine, and Bernardino. Wow. Now, St. Catherine's a big deal because she has a, a very close association with Siena. Yes. Well, she's from Siena. She walked the same streets that we walk on when we visit. And she's also the patron saint of Italy and the patron saint of Europe. 
Saint so Catherine. she's a big deal. Wow, she is a big deal. John Paul II declared her the patron saint of Europe for unification, even though she may have helped cause the great schism of the West. Now, she also- why would she have been declared the saint? Because I think St. Benedict was a big deal because he established mm-hmm. all the monasteries, yep. which kind of tied Europe together in the in the chaos of uh, after Rome fell. Yes. So he could be like Mr. Europe. Yes. What is it about? What would be the excuse to make St. Catherine the saint of Europe? She really wanted people to work together. She was always searching for peace. When Florence was excommunicated, even though Florence was the enemy of Siena, she wrote to the Pope on their behalf. There you go. Are you a Catholic? No, I'm not. What do saints mean to you? You've spent so much of your life studying saints and and obviously quite enthusiastic about saints. I I do love my saints. I love all saints, but I especially love the early modern saints. That is, saints that we know existed. We know their families. We know where they came from, what they did before they became a holy person. So when you walk to St. Catherine's house... Maybe a few cobblestones have been replaced over the years, but she walked those same streets. And she inspired people centuries ago? Yes. If you go to to her house or if you go to the Basilica of San Francesco in Assisi to visit St. Francis, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you believe. People have gone there believing, and there is an energy in these spaces that I find fascinating, and I get those goosebumps again. I find myself often quite moved in these places of worship. Very nice. Anna Piperato, thank you so much for a little insight into saints and uh, an Italian appreciation of saints. <laughs> thank you. Grazie mille. Following a medieval pilgrim route and viewing religious relics along the way can connect you to something that people have been doing for centuries. Timothy Egan tells us what surprised him along the Via Francigena, which goes from Canterbury Cathedral across France and Switzerland to Italy. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. An Irish-American Catholic by birth and a skeptic by profession, New York Times columnist Timothy Egan set out on a nearly 1,200-mile hike on the historic Via Francigena Trail. As he put it, the mission? To find God in Europe before God is gone. His journey from Canterbury, England, went across France, Switzerland, and Italy, and it influenced what he does and does not believe is a deep dive into the history of Europe and the Catholic faith. Tim is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a best-selling author. He's written eight books, and now his ninth. It's called A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of Faith. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Wow. A pilgrimage from Canterbury to Rome. The Via Francigena, that means the uh, the St. Francis Way? It's the way, yeah, the way through France is what it's sometimes interpreted as. Is it the same route as Canterbury Tales, the Chaucer book? No, the start is the same as Canterbury Tales. So okay. we owe our, you know, so much of our English literature, Canterbury Tales, to the pilgrims who would go to Canterbury and try to outdo each other in tales of daring do to get to this shrine where Thomas Beckett was hacked to Okay, death. so that was an example, but this was sort of this medieval approach to pilgrimage. Exactly. People would go somewhere, they'd be on a journey. Exactly. And this, and the Via Francigena, by the way, which is less known than the Community Santiago, was the most popular pilgrimage route in the medieval ages. A million people a year made that journey. Many of them did not make it back. They died of exposure. There were robbers. There was all this stuff along the way. The reason to go was because if you could make it to Rome, all your sins would be forgiven. Therefore, a pilgrimage to eternity. So that was like the Camino to Santiago. If you made it to Santiago de Compostela, you had that sort of reward of forgiveness. Right. I, I think Muslims are supposed to, in one time in their lifetime, go to the Hajj to go to Mecca. Right, exactly. Same sort of thing, I would imagine. Now, describe the route, because I was fascinated in your book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. 
it sounded like it was a bonanza. It was just a parade of history and places wrapped up in the Christian story. Right. So I'll be honest with you as a fellow lover of Europe. It's spectacular, Rick. It's it's some of the most glorious country in the world. If there wasn't even a religious reason to go there, it's worth the walk because it's every place is a new adventure. Every place is a drama. Every place is a fresh, who are you going to meet now? What are you going to bump into? But then it has the bonus of being the theological cradle of Christianity. So there's not a place where a, a martyr hasn't been hacked to death or a king hasn't been crowned with the oil of God or a miracle hasn't happened or an army came together. Every place is some extraordinary event. And as a time traveler, which is what I call myself instead of a historian, it's marvelous. It's just spectacular. Time traveler. You know, I've been dealing with the same thing because people ask me, why am I so excited about Garibaldi? Mm -hmm. You know, because I know what it would be like because of my love of history to be in a, an Italian in a peninsula where there was no Italy. Well, when, he, when he's trying to bring, bring Italy it together. together. Exactly, and, and yeah. Why are you so excited about Martin Luther? Because I can imagine 500 years ago the frustration if you wanted to read the Bible and you couldn't because it was only in Latin and they, they had to dole it out to you on their terms. It was the clerical filter. Yeah. Exactly. So mm-hmm. when you travel, when you see that Gothic cathedral on the horizon... You imagine a pilgrim in the old days without a map, and he saw the spire, and he would set his sights on that spire. Without a GPS, without a phone, without good footwear, without good nutrition. I mean, I had the best stuff that REI could provide and still got horrible blisters. One of the many cool things about the Via Francigena is at the end of every day, especially in Italy, you're just beat dead tired after doing your 18 miles, and then there's the glorious hill town. That's your destination for the day. Oh, yeah. So you still have a 1,000 <laughs> vertical feet you oh, have to man. kill, but then you're going to consume 3,000 calories shortly thereafter, so it's a great reward. That's a great thing about yeah. travel. Yeah. Uh, in your book, you call the Via Francigena, and that's the pilgrimage way from Canterbury in England all the way to Rome in the, in the Vatican. You call it the thinking person's Camino. Yeah, exactly. So the pilgrims I met along the way had introduced me to this concept that I didn't know, you probably know it, of deep walking. Mm-hmm. That in a given day, you're going to try to put aside your digital distractions. You're going to try to resolve some things. Now, some people would say that's naive. I don't think you would say that. But, you know, you try to answer these age-old questions. Some of them have to do with, is there a benevolent God that would allow the Holocaust? You know, a question that theologians have stopped asking, but most of us have not. Some of it has to have to do with, you know, how this church can prevail with a pope I really, really respect and admire, but with so much awful history. And so the thinking man's trail is it prompts these thoughts along the way. Deep walking, a way to meditate while moving. Exactly. I think that's what you called it in your book. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe there's even an advantage to be moving while you're meditating on this Well, sort of you know, um, if you were just sitting around in your room thinking about this, it wouldn't be the same. No, you're right. There's a great prompt, Rick. There's a, all this vast stimulus. And the other thing— You're immersed this, in it. You're swimming through a tight exactly. pool. Exactly. And to think that also, when I was on the final stretch of the VF, which is the Via Antica, the Roman road, to think of my footprints going over the worn rock of, you know, 200 generations of similar pilgrims oh. just gave me shivers. You know, I, I crossed that little hill. What is it? Uh, Monte Mario? Yeah. There's a bluff. Right. And I walked over it on the 500th anniversary of the uh, time that Martin Luther did it. He walked from Germany all the way there. He did. 
he with did. lousy shoes. Exactly. And he came across that bluff, and there he sees St. Peter's, the Mecca of Christendom. Right. That's the highest point in Rome, by the way. I think it's 587 feet yeah. above sea level. I heard something in Canterbury, Rick, when I started this pilgrimage from an Anglican woman minister. I went to the oldest church in the English-speaking world, St. Martin's, with just a handful of congregants there. But the sermon was remarkable, and she talked about Keros time versus Kronos time, which is in the Greek New Testament. Keros is the time we measure our lives by minutes, hours, seconds, days, weeks, months. Chronos time, she said, are moments when awe and wonder seem to stand still. When I was in that park at the end of my pilgrimage, 500 feet above Rome, I said to my wife, pause, Keros time, take it in. You know, this is kind of related, I think, to what you talk about in your book, Tim, this modern versus medieval mindset. And Mm -hmm. a medieval mindset can be a bad thing in some cases, but it can also be a very good thing. And A lot of people are so quick to condemn organized religion. It seems to me, sadly, they they sort of take it out on God when what they're condemning is what people have done in the Mm -hmm. name of God. And and in a big picture, God's probably just up there chuckling, you know? Yeah, you raise a fantastic question. And that's one I wrestled with, too, was that I started this pilgrimage as a skeptic because I'm a journalist and, you know, sort of prove it to me. Someone who had every reason to have abandoned my Catholic faith because there was some pain in my own family how the clerical abuse scandal affected us, but saying to myself, I'm going to strip away the cynicism. I'm going to strip away my skepticism. I'm in my 60s. I'm going to try to have a road to revelation. I don't know what that road is, but I'm going to be open-minded to it. And I came to the roughly, well, I don't want to tell how I ended up, but I'll tell you, one of my conclusions was similar to yours, which was that I don't blame Christ in any way. His philosophy, if you look at even on gays, he doesn't say a word about gays right. yeah. in the New Testament anywhere. How did this come from? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's how organized religion shaped these thoughts. So I came to a much more appreciative and open view of the supernatural, of miracles, of people who have genuine faith and are trying to do good things. But also I came to a much more negative view of when church and state join. You know, a lot of, I was just thinking, a lot of people say have, have a safe trip. Maybe a dangerous trip is transformative travel, and it gets you away from your comfortable preconceptions and your easy cynicism. Uh, very good observation, because I said at the start of this book, for those pilgrims of long ago, this was the most dangerous thing they could do in their lives. Not just physically dangerous, but yeah. some of them would start out as Christians and end up as atheists. Others would start out as atheists and end up as Christians. For me, it became the same way. I met many atheists on this trail, and many young people, yeah. too. Because pilgrimage is a way the young do religion in some respects. You know, we're talking right now with the best-selling author and New York Times columnist Tim Egan. And uh, Tim's written a book called A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. And it shares his introspective time as he ventured, wore out shoes, and, and suffered through, I would think, horrific medieval blisters um, <laughs> uh, on your journey Despite from Canterbury the to best Rome. boots REI has. Oh, man. <laughs> All along the, the medieval Via Francesca, the way of St. Francis. We have mm-hmm. links to Tim's work with this week's show. It's at uh, ricksteves.com slash radio. And to learn more about Tim's work, uh, his, his website is timothyeganbooks.com. That's E-G-A-N, timothyeganbooks.com. So, Tim, when you talked about setting out to be a pilgrim, You needed to get in physical and spiritual shape. I can imagine what getting in physical shape for a long hike is. Talk about getting in spiritual shape before this journey. This is courageous, and you got to get in shape spiritually for something that could be transformational. Very observant 
question because the physical part is the easier part. It's easy to run stairs and do laps and get my upper thighs in shape and all of that and lose some weight. Most of us can do that. Right. So I try to atone. I try to uh, make a donation to charity. I try to cleanse myself of some of my bitterness. But um, no, it's the process of decluttering. And then the much harder thing is the digital cleanse part of it. And I want to make a point about something you said earlier about the spiritual. I say in the book that we are all spiritual beings, but a curse of modern life is that we suffer from malnutrition of the soul. We don't know how to tend the soul because modern life doesn't allow us many opportunities. I'm not even talking in the specific range of organized religion. I'm just talking about attending it. And that's why I think, Rick, pilgrimages are so popular. 200 million people a year worldwide make some sort of pilgrimage. You said the Alps were about your favorite part, the Italian Alps, because it's just soaked in the supernatural. Yeah. What's, what's an well, example? Well, you know this. Every part of Italy, the landscape itself is stitched to mysticism. Yeah. You know, there's a saint who died there. There's a miracle that happened here. And this is the, what I really noticed about the two countries' difference, France and, and Italy, the two biggest countries in the Via Francigena. The French were fine, but they're, they were a little dismissive. You know, right, eh, they were yeah. kind of meh. <laughs> and I even say the French dogs had an attitude, you know. Yeah. You get to Italy, and this one of the first things that happens is this woman comes out and kisses me on the cheek. And she says, I'm no longer Catholic, but I love pilgrims. When you get to Rome, you must say, say, ciao to Papa Francesca. <laughs> give him, tell him I love Papa Francesca. I'm no, I'm no right. Catholic, but give, give right. Papa she, Francesca she gave my me this does. big kiss on the cheek. And the Italians were like that. They were very welcome. They really welcome and respect and love Via Francigia pilgrims. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Egan, and his book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in search of a faith. We know Tim from his work as a New York Times columnist and some of his other great novels, and this is his latest sharing, how this was a transformational experience, and it's something that anybody can risk having if they make the point to go on a pilgrimage. Tim, when I think of a pilgrimage, I think of pain. When I think of, you know, devotion... You think of pain, mm-hmm. and, and it can be ugly, people whipping themselves and this yeah, kind of thing. the flagellants. The fla- right, it, right. it can be, I, I climbed the holy steps in Rome on my knees just to see what it's like. It's holy painful. Cow. And that's just a small thing, but right. you've got Jesus on the cross up at the top of the staircase, uh-huh. and you've got all these old, devout Catholics around me climbing on the knees and saying uh, the Our Father in every step. Right. And I'm on my knees just to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. I did. When you've got that pain, you empathize a little more with, with this. <laughs> did, it, did it change your view in any way? <laughs> <laughs> it just, it made me think about suffering exactly. and, and other things. Um, but you had pain on your trip with your, just the, the drudgery of hiking and dealing with the demand physically. Well, you know, climate change is affecting Europe rather dramatically. And I had, I started out in May and I had an incredible heat wave. I don't know if you remember two years ago when Europe was ablaze and much of it was on fire. I mean, I had I had 100-degree temperatures in May. That alone was hard. And then get snowstorms on the other side. I mean, that's part of the adventure of knowing, you know, one day it's going to be like this, the next day it's going to be like that. Getting lost is part of the adventure. I got lost a, a bunch of times, and that's really hard. You know, you, at the end of the day, it's getting dark, and you're just getting ready. You don't know where you're going to stay. I never traveled with a sleeping bag. I had to make it to a monastery, a hostel, or a hotel. What an adventure. I would love to hear your thought on your experience about relics and miracles, because this is something that modern people have a very tough time, and you can be logical. There's something beyond logic. But you had an experience at Santa Lucia, Filippini? Yes, uh Filippini. So I started out just totally flabbergasted by the concept of relics. They're basically body parts, a piece of a finger of St. Thomas, uh, a hair clipping from another martyr. 
And when then you get to Italy and you realize a fair amount of the churches have a body underneath the altar there in the crypt. And in the Catholic faith, there's a concept called incorruptibility, which means a person has lived a saintly life and the body does not decay. Well, of course, I was skeptical of this. And then I get to Montefiascone, which has the third largest dome in all of Christendom. The first is in Florence. The second is St. Peter's Square. The third is in the Cathedral of Santa Margarita. I got there on this dark and stormy night near the end of my pilgrimage. I was bone tired. I was wet. And I went and stripped off my clothes. I ran to the church in the howling storm. I ignored the third largest dome in Christendom to go down into the crypt and see San Lucia Filippini through the glass. So I'm all alone, just me and Lucy. And I walk close. I get within 10 feet. And she's lying on her side. She's got this alabaster pale face. She looks like Elizabeth Warren. And then now I'm a skeptic. Her eyes opened. The eyes, I I clearly saw the eyes slowly open. I got out my camera. I took a bunch of pictures. And then the eyes slowly closed. And I later wrote a note to the bishop of Montefiascone saying, okay, you know, you got a little undertaking trick going on here. You know, the American girl dolls that my daughter used to have, their eyes opened when you turned them. So wait a minute. I'm sitting across from Tim Egan, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York <laughs> Times <laughs> columnist. You're in a crypt in Italy, and you're looking at uh, some relics, and the eyes literally opened and closed you saw. Of a 362-year-old dead woman, again, who looked pretty good. And yeah. her miracle was her saintly life. She promoted schools right. for girls and stuff like that. It's tough the way you phrased it, but that's what happened. I, I couldn't shake my skepticism. Now, here's what happened later on. I asked the other pilgrims as I got near the end if anyone had seen this. Well, there was a Russian physicist who was traveling the Via Francigena for penance for his role in Chernobyl. He didn't speak a word of English, but my English friend told me he saw the same thing I did. So I said, great. My only corroborating witness is a man who knows too much and can't speak a word of English. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But Rick, honestly, um, I know what happened. I hadn't had a drink. You know, I was fully aware of my senses and this and that. I saw this. I saw these eyes open. Tim, I loved it when you walked into Rome thinking what it would be like to walk in Rome as a pilgrim, and you did it. And you stood before that statue of Bruno on Campo di Fiore, and you looked into Bruno's eyes. What did you think? What was that like? Well, Bruno was the heretic who was burned for believing what every third grader today knows to be true, simple science. The interesting thing, he's staring across with his cowl at, at the Vatican less than a mile away. Now that history turns and pivots, now we have a pope. Pope Francis, who embraces science, who spoke to the American Congress and said, don't be in climate denial, but don't deny science, who had Stephen Hawking come visit him and loved talking to him and hearing about it. And he said that every new thing we learn from science is evidence of the divine. So, but it was, it was interesting. Because and, and the Bruno statue is right there in a, in a square and, today that celebrates uh, hedonism and secularism. Right, right. And, it's, and beneath, I think that at the base of the statue, it says, um, to Bruno from the people he foresaw. Oh, yeah. See, now, and the the people he foresaw is actually uh, the Pope today. Exactly right. That's the point I make, the great irony. The Pope today, who's celebrated a square, a piazza in Rome being named after Martin Luther. Exactly. Things change. Yeah, he really reached out to Lutherans, too. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an ongoing thing, and to be travelers, Mm -hmm. we can be open to that. To be a tourist is to have a bucket list and take a selfie. To be a traveler is to go to learn about a place and broaden your perspective. To be a pilgrim is to learn not necessarily about the place, but about yourself. It can be transformational. And your book is a a testimony to that. I love this notion that you talked about in your book. There is no way. The way is made by walking. It's from St. Labre, the patron saint of the homeless. 
he was um, a wanderer all his life, and he died in the Colosseum with scabs and wounds all over him at the age of 37. Uh, he lived in France, and he still lives on. There's a big celebration in his name, but he spent his entire life with other homeless people wandering around Europe. And that wonderful line I found early on in the pilgrimage, it became one of my themes, that there is no way the way is made by walking. And it's sort of a universal sentiment. If you take that to heart and you're open, I think a lot of things will happen to you. Tim Egan, thank you so much for the, um, I think, the courage and the openness and the spirit of exploration to take a pilgrimage from Canterbury to Rome and then write about it. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Timothy Egan is the author of A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. His latest work just came out. It's Fever in the Heartland, and that's a historical thriller about an early 20th century plot by the Indiana KKK to take over America. We'll take a closer look at the role of religious relics next on Travel with Rick Steves. They might seem hopelessly out of date and hard to authenticate for our modern sensibilities, but religious relics today can show us what was once highly treasured in the Middle Ages. A relic might be a piece of bone in a small jewel-like box, or even the entire skeleton of a holy person stored in a glass coffin under the altar. In the U.S., Catholic churches in Louisville, Pittsburgh, and Chicago, and a convent at Maria Stein, Ohio, are known for the relics they have on display. Historian Peter Manceau investigated the role of relics in his book, Rag and Bone, A Journey Among the World's Holy Dead. Peter, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thank you. You know, you wrote in your book that, actually, St. Paul wrote, Faith is trust in things unseen. You quoted St. Paul. Um, That really relates to relics, doesn't it? It does. Relics are fascinating to me because they are at once something very much seen. I mean, the point of them is to go and see them, in fact. But for people who believe in them, they are a key to open a door to the unseen, basically. They are small physical objects that, for believers, um, relate to a whole universe of belief. And for me, as someone who writes about religion and, and loves traveling, they are always on my itinerary whenever I'm traveling. So you wrote in your book, Relics are a place where the abstraction of faith meets the reality of the physical world. Yes, I think it's easy to uh, assume that when we talk about religion, we're only talking about the unseen. We're only talking about prayer or people's beliefs. But we wouldn't have anything to talk about with religion if it was not a very real phenomenon, whatever the content of our beliefs are. Religious artifacts exist, and they are powerful objects and they need to be contended with, no matter what we believe about them in themselves. Now, a Catholic knows how to approach a relic, I think, properly, and a lot of Protestants sort of don't get it. Um, I'm a Protestant. Are you a Catholic? I was raised as a Catholic, and interestingly, um, as an American Catholic, growing up far from where the vast majority of relics are, which is in Catholic Europe, I didn't grow up with too much awareness of them. We knew what relics were. We Mm -hmm. knew what they signified. We knew that they were important and holy and and all the rest. But they were as foreign to us growing up, I think, as they were to many American Protestants. Well, to a Protestant, it seems like you're worshiping something that's just a thing. But in actuality, wouldn't you say a relic is not to be worshipped, but it's an aid to help you worship? Well, that's exactly right. And Catholics think about it, it, the official line about relics is that they are not too different from an icon or a crucifix or a statue of, of a saint, in that all of these things are not the gods themselves, not the saints themselves, but are only 
aids to the imagination, aids to the religious imagination. They are basically conduits for your prayers. If you hmm. direct your devotion toward them, they'll get your prayers where they need to go. They have a way of sanctifying in a very real and direct way the spaces in which they appear. For example, every Catholic church around the world has a relic, whether or not it's on display. It is hidden deep within the altar of the church, and it is the presence of that relic that truly makes the place holy and makes the altar someplace where the liturgy, where the Mass can take place in an effective way. So that's almost like a legality, I guess. I was at a church in uh, Volterra in Italy, and my guide took me to the church, and it was not a very well-known church, and he lifted up the cloth on every one of the altars in the chapels. There must have been six or eight chapels in that church. Lifted up the white cloth, and he showed me a little cut-out piece of marble, a little patch, and he said, under that patch is the relic that sort of legitimizes this altar. And I I didn't realize that. In most American cities, you see that a number of churches are no longer serving a religious purpose. Some of them uh, in Washington, where I live now, have been turned into condominiums, for example. And in each of these churches, if they were Catholic churches to begin with, there has been a ceremony that has taken place when the church is no longer in service. There's a ceremony in which the relic is removed from the altar and it desanctifies this church, basically. Wow. So uh, formally, physically decommissioned, and they yank the uh, relic out. It's like taking the SIM card out of a cell phone. It's not going to work anymore. <laughs> It's exactly like that. Unlike a SIM card, though, it, it, you might just get rid of when you're done with it. These, of course, are treated with great respect, and they are taken to another place to hold them until they can be put into another altar in another church or just held permanently. Fascinating. I'm speaking with Peter Manceau, who writes a book called Rag and Bone. Peter's website is petermanceau.com, P-E-T-E-R-M-A-N-S-E-A-U.com, and we're talking about relics. William's on the phone in Miami. William, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, how's it going? Good. Got a thought on rags and bones for Peter here? Well, yeah. My question is that since, you know, quite a few of these holy relics were purchased during the time of the Crusades and are probably, you know, kind of dubious authenticity, are the churches, like, in possession of them right now, are they interested in checking the authenticity given the new technologies available now, or are they just rather not know after all this time? Um you open up a whole range of questions, in fact. And first of all, I want to say that um, you mentioned the Crusades, and it's worth remembering that in some ways this um, was fought on behalf of relics. Um, many of the Crusaders who went to Jerusalem to take back the Holy Land really went because they wanted to line their pockets with these religious uh, treasures and bring them back to Europe. So most of the artifacts that we see are in churches around Europe. That's where they came from, and that, that's how they ended up there. And you're right that they've been in possession of various churches for so long, many of their provenances are unknown. Uh, They've often been gotten by ill-gotten means, and only now, as science has developed to identify these things, is it really possible to ask a question about their authenticity and to really find an answer. In the book, I spent a lot of time with a, a paleopathologist in Paris, and he has made it his project to identify and to test through DNA and radiocarbon dating a lot of these religious artifacts. Most of his work has been on a piece of rib bone that for the past century has been believed to be the last remains of Joan of Arc. Now, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake, and so it, it's not often thought that she had any remains at all, and yet this one relic has persisted. So he has made it his work to authenticate this relic or de-authenticate the relic. And the church, to its credit, has been uh, fully on board with this. They, they want to know uh, the truth about the objects that they revere. Well, I was in Paris last week myself, and they had the uh, crown of thorns on display. Has anybody checked that one? 
Not as far as I know. And there's really not much that can be done with some of these relics to determine uh, how old they are or, in the case of bodily remains, who they once belonged to. Because when you're testing for DNA, you need another sample to test it against. Um, But I also think that there is something significant about relics, regardless of whether or not they are authentic, regardless of whether or not they are, quote unquote, the real thing. And that's just because for the past, in the case of something like the crown of thorns, for the past more than a thousand years, here's an object that has been the object of veneration for untold millions of people. And that in itself makes it religiously significant. It makes it worth thinking about. Yeah, they built St. John's Teleport, didn't they? Actually, the king paid more for the thorns than he paid for the great church to contain it, the San Chapelle. <laughs> I mean, so it was important a thousand years ago or 800 years ago when they when they brought it to Paris. And I think that's a cool point that Peter makes is that even if it is bogus from a non-religious point of view, a thousand years of faith and focus actually gives it some sort of connection and, and it, it, it takes on a value in itself, doesn't it? Is that what you're saying, Peter? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and I should say that I come to this book not a, as a believer but not entirely as a skeptic either, because I, I'm not interested in, in debunking these things um, so much as I am in, in examining the stories that have surrounded them for a thousand years. And more importantly to me as a journalist, I'm interested in the lives that currently revolve around them. I'm oh, interested yeah. in the people who, who still make these things the object of their faith. Well, I find it fascinating. When I go to the large churches, I go always go in the side chapels and check for the reliquies and things mm-hmm. like that. But one quick aside, Rick, I stopped by Chartres. Yeah, and uh, I noticed you mentioned there about the Mary's birthing veil. Right, that uh, it had been carbon dated. Uh, they didn't have it on display though. Right, and plus they had so much scaffolding up, it was not worth going to. I think carbon dating is bad news for relics, William. <laughs> I think so too. Thanks for your well, call, William. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, uh, William brings up an interesting point, Peter. That if you got, let's say, the Vatican which its legitimacy is resting upon the fact that it is built upon the tomb of St. Peter, uh, and all of a sudden there's new technology that lets you take those bones under there and, and do some testing, they're not eager to challenge the legitimacy of the whole thing. I don't blame them for wanting to keep that in the dark. And like you, I don't think that's the point. I think that for 1,500, 1,800 years, people have been worshiping on that spot. Who really cares if it's the actual relic? Because people aren't worshiping that thing that is an aid for them to worship God. That's exactly right. And I think that we need to give the church some credit in in terms of being open to the use of science for understanding more about these objects that have been so long a part of the faith. In fact, there's a long history, well, not long in in terms of the lifetime of relics, but at least uh, for the past hundred years or so, of the church bringing in experts in tissue preservation, for example, as a way of preserving relics. Um, And so they are not totally Mm -hmm. objectionable to science, especially when it can be used to benefit the relics that they venerate. You know, you can relate that to 20th century history and think about the tomb of Lenin in in Red Square or Elvis Presley's artifacts or all the people that want to see Gandhi's spinning wheel or other examples like this. Uh, It it even kind of lets us understand maybe the impact of relics in the old days to see how people do this uh, pop kind of culture stuff today. That's right. And, you know, I really believe that relics predate religion and will survive religion. (laughs) And it's not only a religious instinct, just as it's not only a Christian instinct. You find relics in every religious tradition nearly, and you find them outside of religious tradition as well. And the fascinating thing about it in terms of travel is that wherever they exist, they become the site of pilgrimages. People Hmm. come to see them um, by the thousands. Oh, I've waited in line hours to see Lenin's body. (laughs) Nothing religious about that. And, well, I guess communism was religion, and he was the the prophet. Um, Well, all religion have some interest in relics. Do some religions have more than others? 
Well, each religion has a slightly different understanding of the body in death. And you talk about what a big deal Buddha's tooth is down in Sri Lanka, right? Buddha's tooth is a popular relic in a few different places. Um, I visited the one in Sri Lanka. There's also a popular relic of Buddha's tooth in China and also in, in Myanmar. The tooth in Kandy in Sri Lanka that I visited is really the center of Sri Lankan society. It is the focal point of what it means to be Sri Lankan is the tooth of the Buddha. Wow. Historian and novelist Peter Manso is a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, and he founded its Center for the Understanding of Religion in American History. We talked with him on Travel with Rick Steves when he had just released his book, Rag and Bone, A Journey Among the World's Holy Dead. Since then, Peter's written the Jefferson Bible of Biography, the history of the last Yiddish poet in Baltimore called Songs for the Butcher's Daughter, and his book, Vows, which tells the story of his parents, a former Catholic priest and nun, whose marriage caused quite a stir in Boston in 1969. Peter's website is petermanso.com, spelled M-A-N-S-E-A-U. We've got Katie on the phone from Victoria, British Columbia. Katie, thanks for your call. Hi. Well, I have a question um, Mm -hmm. about approaching relics or viewing them in churches. Is there any protocol or custom that you have to observe or that you should observe? when approaching these relics? I think that your best bet is to follow local custom as best you can. And so if you are in a uh, Catholic church in Italy, let's say you may want to cover your head if the women around you, if the locals are covering their heads. I spent a lot of time looking at relics in Turkey, and when you go to a a mosque in Turkey, um, you most certainly don't want to be wearing shorts, for example. And so you just want to follow the lead of the locals as best you can. And if you do that, I think that you will find that um, your interest in the relics is, is welcome, and, and the locals will want to talk to you about them and tell you why they are important to them. But always follow the lead of the locals, I think, is the, is the creed of relics. And, and Katie, it's easy to do if, because if it's a big-time relic, there's usually a bit of a line to get to the front to look into that murky glass case and see the vocal cords of uh, St. Anthony and Pedro, right? And you got a chance to look at everybody ahead of you and see what they're doing. And it just makes sense, as Peter says, to uh, assume the same uh, respectful manner that all of the pilgrims there are assuming as you uh, pass in front of that relic. I've also found, Katie, and they're a wonderful opportunity to talk to people in a way that you might not be able to just walking out around a, a new city. The people who are there who, who make a habit of coming to see the relics for reasons of religious belief, they want to tell you about them. I think they are flattered by your curiosity that you have come so far to be a part of their life in this way. It can be a great way to go past just asking directions in a new place and really start to make friends. Peter Manso is a curator at the National Museum of American History in Washington. He explores the role of religious relics in his book, Rag and Bone. He's also written a novel set in 14th century Europe at the time of the plague. It's called The Maiden of All Our Desires. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Nicole's on the line in Dallas. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for your call. Uh, yes, I'm Catholic, and I've seen a lot of reliquaries in Europe, but... One of the most spiritual experiences I had was actually at a mosque in Istanbul. We took the ferry up the Golden Horn to Ayyub and went to the Ayyub Sultan Mosque where Ayyub uh, Ansari is buried. And it's supposed to be the fourth holiest place in Islam after uh, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. And so there were all these Muslims there that had come from probably all over the place praying at the tomb, and um, the whole complex is just really peaceful, and it was really a beautiful experience. 
Boy, I would highly um, second that thought uh, so people can understand this. E-Y-U-P, E-U-P. It's, for me, far and away the most powerful people-watching, spiritual, Muslim pilgrimage kind of experience a, a tourist can have in Istanbul because that, as you mentioned, is a pilgrimage destination, whereas the Blue Mosque and Hagia Sophia are cruise ship destinations more so. Exactly. There were not as many people, and there was definitely an air of prayer and calm as opposed to gawking. <laughs> and people were visiting outside the area. I mean, it was just a real feeling of um, There's a, a community. Community, conviviality, uh, and also a, a conservative sort of Muslim fundamentalism. And that gets you tuned into a, a very interesting dynamic in the secular country of Turkey that there's a lot of push for more and more connection of mosque and state instead of separation of mosque and state. Nicole, thanks for your uh, insight. That's a great tip. Thanks. Bye-bye. What struck me when I was there was uh, the number of families outside, and all of the little boys were dressed in these great flowing silver capes with crowns on for some particular uh, ceremony that they were engaged in. And it was a great reminder to me that it, it's so easy from afar to think of mosques as places where only religion happens, but they are hubs of the community as well. And often the relics are the focal point. And so the families will crowd in and be near to the relic. And then they'll go outside and they'll get themselves an ice cream cone and, and be just like families here out enjoying the day. I remember the families at Eop in Istanbul and the cute teenage girls with their high heels and their trendy clothes underneath their religious garb. And you could see the real dynamic of their faith and their struggles and their growing up and, and their multi-generational approach to things in the modern world, meeting the traditional world, all around a church which had a relic that brings a lot of pilgrims together. And Turkey is such a fascinating place for religious travel lately because while there are all of these Muslim sites and uh, the Muslim faithful as well as tourists go to see them, there's also a whole range of Christian sites that have become a focus of, of growing Christian tourism from North America mostly. And there's a nice intersection of these two communities. They often bump into each other at sites and, and seeing the coming together of two groups of people traveling for reasons of faith is, is really um, eye-opening. You know, that's a very good point, Peter, because a lot of tourists want to see the House of the Virgin Mary in Ephesus, and it's also a Muslim holy spot because Mary and Jesus and John the Baptist and lots of biblical characters are also venerated in the Muslim faith. What I love about traveling, especially as a writer who writes about religion, is the opportunity to discover these commonalities that we might not know we have until we're on the spot and meeting people and asking them why they are there. Peter, it's just been fascinating talking to you. You've seen a lot of relics in your work. Finish off with just a, a thought of the, the most powerful personal experience you had in your research on relics. I was up in, um, in Kashmir in, um, in northern India, and as I went there, I, I was aware of it as a dangerous place. There's a lot of sectarian violence that happens there. And I went to see a, a contested relic. There is a hair of the Prophet Muhammad that certain Hindu nationalist groups have started to claim as their own, saying it's not, in fact, a Muslim relic, but a Hindu relic. I spent some time with a family that for eight generations has been the guardian of the relic. And what was most touching to me was meeting this old gentleman who grew up as the watchkeeper, the safekeeper of the relic. When he heard what types of traveling I was doing, he wanted desperately to know about other relics around the world. Uh, he wanted to know about Christian relics and Buddhist relics because it gave him some indication that his life had so much in common with those around the world whom he would never meet, but they did have this one article of faith in common. I love it. Relics can help us connect with God, and at the same time, they help people connect with other cultures and other people. Peter Manso, author of Rag and Bone, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton. 
Kazmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and raring to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.